Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. If you're new to this podcast, or Trip Hacks DC in general, hello, my name is Rob. I'm a tour guide, and I founded Trip Hacks DC back in 2017. My goal is to give you my best tips, tricks, and travel hacks so you can have the best possible trip when you visit Washington, D.C. I've been a tour guide for over a decade, and in my years in this industry, I've come to strongly believe that one of the most important indicators of whether someone is going to have a great trip or not is their expectations management. Honestly, it doesn't matter what the destination is or how objectively great that destination is. If your expectations don't match the reality, especially if you set too high of expectations, you're probably not going to have a great time. If you go to your local Six Flags theme park but expect a Disney World experience, you'll probably be disappointed. If you go to the moon but your expectation was for Mars, you'll probably be disappointed. I've mentioned this before in a few podcast episodes, but I actually think Washington, D.C. benefits a bit from the fact that national politicians, national cable TV news hosts are constantly bad-mouthing the city. It doesn't matter that the things they're saying are often factually wrong or not even based in reality. They are influencers and give people a certain impression of D.C. And then, in my experience... People come and visit and they say, oh, it's actually pretty nice. It inspired me to make this entire episode about expectations management. So I've rounded up 15 things I think Washington, D.C. visitors have wrong expectations about. So let's run through them and then I'll do my best to share what I think the correct expectation to have should be. Expectation number one, that Washington, D.C. has nice weather. I honestly struggle to understand where this one comes from. It's possible to come to Washington, D.C. and experience nice weather. I'm not saying we never get a nice day, but the expectation that we have good weather year-round is not a realistic one. Washington, D.C. is not San Diego, and you can't expect San Diego weather. Peak tourist season in D.C. is in the summer, and summer is also when we have typically hot and very humid weather. July is, in my opinion, the worst weather month of the entire year. It's possible you might get lucky and get a nice day in June or in August, but it's pretty much guaranteed if you come in July, it's going to be hot and humid. Where do I think this unrealistic expectation comes from? I actually think it comes from how the city is photographed and frequently presented. Think about it for a moment. If I ask you to think of a picture of Washington, D.C., what comes to mind? Is the grass green and lush? Is the sun shining? Are there cherry blossoms on all of the trees? The cherry blossoms are in peak bloom for approximately one week of the year. That means 51 out of 52 weeks, it doesn't look like the famous photos. But they are beautiful, and I get why people love to photograph D.C. with cherry blossoms. I've made plenty of cherry blossom content myself. The downside is that if you base your weather expectations off of beautiful cherry blossom photos, you're probably not going to be thrilled with what you actually get. 
There are a lot of reasons why Washington, D.C. is a great travel destination. I just don't think weather is one of them. Whenever I give a tour and it's on one of those rare, gloriously nice weather days, I feel like I say a hundred times over the course of the tour how lucky the group is with me. I'm out touring in all kind of weather conditions, so when we get one of those rare, super nice days, it is pretty amazing to experience. Overall, my advice when it comes to weather is, don't expect nice weather. Expect unpredictable weather. It might be sunny one day of your trip and rainy another day. As long as you're willing to be adaptable, there's not much you can't do at all because of the weather. And if you come on a nice day, be pleasantly surprised and take advantage. The second misaligned expectation that a lot of people have has to do with those cherry blossoms. And these generally fall into two categories. The wrong expectations about exactly when they're going to bloom, and the wrong expectations about how long they stay in bloom. Now, it's important to understand that there is not a single cherry blossom. Cherry trees, just like apple trees, come in many different varieties and produce many similar but different types of fruit. The most common cherry tree in D.C. is the Japanese Yoshino cherry, though there are about a dozen different varieties that you can find around town. The peak bloom date, therefore, is defined as the day when 70% of the Yoshino cherry blossoms are open. When you see those iconic photos of Washington, D.C. taken from the Tidal Basin with the cherry blossoms bursting everywhere, those photos were taken during this peak bloom. Now, Yoshino cherries are just one of about a dozen varieties, and the other 11 are equally, if not more spectacular, in my opinion. And the different varieties have slightly different blooming schedules. So if you arrive before peak bloom, there will probably be something in bloom. And if you arrive a bit too late, there will probably still be something in bloom. But if your expectation is that you are going to see the actual peak Yoshino bloom from the famous photos, you have to get extremely lucky for that to happen. Peak bloom is notoriously difficult to time. It can start as early as mid-March or as late as mid-April or anywhere in between. The exact timing of peak bloom depends on the weather in the weeks leading up to spring. Cold February and early March usually means a later bloom, and a warm February and early March usually means an early bloom. I acknowledge every year that I am extremely lucky to live in D.C., and to be here for all of March and all of April, so no matter when peak bloom hits, I'll be able to experience it. I'm also aware that for most travelers, they can only come for a few days or maybe up to a week, and if the timing isn't quite right, they might miss peak bloom. Another thing that makes this all very confusing is that the National Cherry Blossom Festival is usually a three and a half to four week event starting on March 20th. This year, in 2024, the festival dates are March 20th through April 14th. That's 25 consecutive days. But the actual blossoms will not actually be in peak bloom for all 25 of those days. My understanding about why the festival itself is so long is that they're trying to cover the possible range of dates when we could have peak bloom. So the idea isn't that the blossoms will be in bloom for the entire period. It's that at some point during the period, they will hit peak bloom. 
The misaligned expectation comes from tourists who think as long as they come to D.C. during any of the festival dates that they will see a peak bloom, and that just isn't the case. So my advice for setting your cherry blossom expectations is this. Don't expect to see peak bloom, and be pleasantly surprised if you do get lucky and see it. And as long as you're coming during festival dates, remember that something will be in bloom. It might not be exactly what you see in the famous photos, but it's better than nothing. Okay, now let's move on to misaligned expectation number three, which is the amount of walking you will do when you visit Washington, D.C., and how physically demanding it will be on your body. I think most people are aware that they're going to do more walking in D.C. than they probably do back home. I think the misaligned expectation is exactly how much more they're going to do compared to back home. For context, I do have a smartwatch, and I do keep track of my steps on it. On a typical day, from regular activities including walking my dogs, doing chores, going to the park, picking up lunch, etc., I can usually get close to 10,000 steps without much dedicated effort. On a day I give a tour, I can easily hit 15,000 to 20,000 steps, depending how much additional walking I do that day besides the tour. When you visit D.C., you will probably get up to that 15,000 to 20,000 step range, even if you do an average amount of walking as a tourist. If you have a smartwatch, I would encourage you to take a look at your step data or start paying attention to it. See what you do on a typical day and then compare that to the numbers I just gave. If your typical day is way under 10,000 steps, then you might struggle when you get here because your body simply isn't used to the amount of walking you're going to do. One of the several reasons why my evening monuments tour starts at 5 o'clock and not later is because I've been doing this for long enough to know that by the end of the day, a lot of visitors are just wiped. And a big part of that is the amount of walking they've already done all day. I have family who lives in the suburbs, and when I visit the suburbs, I've noticed it's hard to do a lot of walking without making an intentional effort. I'm not judging, just stating the fact that the American suburban lifestyle is very sedentary. Any time you spend outside the home is typically not spent walking. When I visit the suburbs, even doing something like going to Starbucks to get a cup of coffee adds almost no steps to my counter because I'm only walking from the front door to the car, going through the drive-thru, picking up my coffee, and driving it back home. In D.C., going to get a cup of coffee might be 500 to 1,000 of my daily steps, depending which shop I choose that day. In the suburbs, it's less than 100. So my advice is to not just be aware that you're going to do more walking than back home, but actually start preparing your body for it. Start early and gradually work your way up. Maybe the first week you start by trying to get 5,000 steps in. Then the next week you move it up to 7,500 daily steps and then 10,000, etc. This may require a conscious effort. You may need to go to the park and walk around the circumference a few times. Or if you have an old treadmill in your house collecting dust, you might need to plug it in and start using it. This is also the reason why I harp so much on the importance of comfortable shoes. And comfort is a personal thing. I've tried many different brands of shoes over the years, including shoes that other people swore to me were the best. 
Eventually, I found the shoes that are best for me, and I've stuck with them since. So start this process early. Buying brand new shoes the day before your trip is not a guarantee your feet will be happy with them just because they're new. Moving on to misaligned expectation number four, which is that getting around DC is quick and easy. I think a lot of people expect when they come to DC that they're going to be zipping around on the Metro. And I wanna start by saying that Metro is an excellent way to get around generally, but exactly how quick you're going to get everywhere depends how close your destination is to Metro and where exactly you're staying. When Metro was conceived in the 1960s, it was designed as a hybrid subway system and commuter rail. And its primary purpose back then was bringing people downtown in the morning to work and sending them back home in the evening after work. So downtown DC is very well served by Metro. And one of the reasons why I historically said choosing a hotel downtown was a good choice. This is why, for example, there is only one National Mall station, and it's not particularly convenient to large chunks of the National Mall. It's also the reason why there is a station with National Zoo in the name, but it's a half-mile walk uphill just to get to the zoo entrance. The fact that Metro is a good way for tourists to get around is a bit of a happy accident rather than an intentional choice. Then, of course, there's also Uber and Lyft, which tourists have come to rely on a lot. These apps are, admittedly, very convenient, in the sense that you can more or less count on always being able to press a button and having someone show up and take you somewhere at a moment's notice. I think anyone who traveled in the pre-Uber days can appreciate how this is kind of like magic in some ways. Hiring a ride may be convenient, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get to your destination fast. Uber and Lyft suffer from the fatal flaw which is that they get stuck in the same traffic as everybody else. In DC, traffic is usually heavy, at all hours of the day, on all days of the week. If you've ever taken a tour with me, you know in the pre-tour messaging, I make a big deal about planning to arrive early because traffic is that unpredictable. Unfortunately, I have to do this because in the early days of TripHacks DC, People would frequently arrive for the tour late and say, wow, I didn't realize there was going to be so much traffic. So my advice to correct this misaligned expectation is to always plan that travel and transportation is going to take longer than you might think. It's almost always better to arrive at your destination early than to be stressed out because you're going to arrive late. Onward to misaligned expectation number five, which is that there aren't many things to see and do in D.C., This one kills me because the actual truth is that there is an overwhelming number of things to see and do in D.C. Back in episode 41, I interviewed Noelle, a local who went to every museum in D.C. She had over 80 museums checked off on her list. 80. Imagine you go to one museum a day. It would take you nearly three months to get through that list. And that's only the museums. DC has way more to offer beyond just museums. I think this misaligned expectation happens for two reasons. The first is that people compare Washington, DC to bigger East Coast cities, specifically New York City. I will admit, New York City is a bigger city and with even more things to do. 
But just because we are not the biggest city in America doesn't mean we're a small city either. Now, one thing I notice, and I don't know if other people notice this or if I'm just hyper-tuned into it, but videos on YouTube are often titled something like DC in one day or 24 hours in DC. And it's not just here. There are the same genre for all big destinations. And these drive me absolutely bonkers because while, yes, you could take a morning flight in, see DC or New York or London, and then move on to the next place, what these videos don't portray is how much you're not doing. And I get why people make these videos. They make them because they get clicks, because it's interesting to see. Can I really do all of that in just one day? They get clicks because we live in a world where vacation days are limited and hotels are expensive. And if it's possible to hack a destination and see everything in a day, who wouldn't want to do that? But even if you recognize that 24 hours is not enough time to see DC, a lot of people extrapolate from that and think, well, since it's not a big city, two days ought to be sufficient then. Back when I was a younger traveler, I made plenty of my own personal travel mistakes. But the ones that haunt me the most are the things I didn't get to do because it was only once I arrived at the destination that I realized it was a lot bigger than I had expected or planned for. So my advice for this is first, resist the urge to compare Washington, D.C. to bigger cities. And second, to understand that a lot of what you see online is not reality. Unfortunately, a lot of videos these days are made to generate clicks. They're created to make money for the video creator. They're not designed to be helpful to you, the traveler. Some are, don't get me wrong. I try to make every Triphex DC video as helpful as possible. But not every piece of content online is made with the best intentions. All right, now I need a coffee refill. So let's take a one minute break and then I will be back with the rest of the list. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip. And that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to triphacksdc.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing Trip Hacks DC tour guides. And we're back. And let's turn to misaligned expectation number six, which is that Washington, D.C. is all about national politics. Years ago, I don't remember the exact year, but it was definitely before COVID, I was flying out of Columbus, Ohio, back to D.C. When I gave my ID to the TSA agent, he looked at me and said, Washington, D.C.? What are you, a politician or something? Now, of course, I could have launched into a whole thing about how national politicians wouldn't be flying with a Washington, D.C. driver's license and that they'd actually have the ID from their home state, but I bit my tongue and said, ha, that's funny, but no, and proceeded through. Now, to clarify, I think it is true that D.C. is closer to national politics than most other cities. 
But I also think it's true that a large chunk of the population here does not work in politics, and I might even go as far to say that they don't even like national politics. And it is definitely not the case, like this TSA agent was implying, that everyone here is a national politician. Personally, I despise national politics. I hate the performance of it all. Someone much wiser than me on this topic said that being a politician is actually three jobs at once. The first is being a candidate for office and running for or rerunning for your job. The second is playing a character on Twitter and on cable TV, spouting off all the talking points and saying all the things that you need to say to a specific audience. And the third is governing. I think the actual governing part is the most important. It's the part that actually impacts regular people's lives. It should be the most important of the three. But unfortunately, it seems like it's the least important for many people who hold national political office. That same wise person said, the reason why national politics is so painful these days is because too many people are there not because they want to govern, but because they like being political influencers. That really stuck with me because I think it's sadly accurate. Sometimes people will come on my tour and name drop their member of Congress because their office was helpful and set them up with a Capitol tour or a White House tour. And I'll be honest, chances are I have no idea who that person is. There are over 500 combined members of the House of Representatives and Senate. Most people, including people who live in D.C., and including me, couldn't name more than a few dozen of them at most. But to say everyone in D.C. is really into politics because politicians are here is a bit silly when you think about it. It's about as silly as saying that everyone in New York City is super into stock trading because that's where a lot of stock exchanges are. Or that people in Houston are really into oil and gas because that's where the corporate headquarters are. So if you don't like or care about national politics, don't think Washington, D.C. can't be a good destination for you. And on the flip side, if you are really into national politics, don't assume everyone here is equally as into it as you. Another misaligned expectation people have about D.C. is the demographics of the city. One of the most misaligned is the expectation that the demographics of D.C. are for some reason a microcosm of the demographics of the United States. That's not accurate at all. A somewhat related one is that the demographics of D.C. shift substantially every four or eight years when the presidential administration changes. It is true that when an administration changes, some people move in and some people move out. But the number of people who work for a presidential administration is a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall population. Changes in demographics happen slowly over many years. If you compare the demographics of D.C. to the entire nation on race, ethnicity, income, educational attainment, or many other metrics, you'll see it doesn't really line up. Washington, D.C. is a big East Coast city, and it has the demographics of a big East Coast city. And without getting into the weeds, I will also say that D.C. has the politics of a big East Coast city. You can go look up any recent year's election results to see what I mean. On to misaligned expectation number eight, which is that Washington, D.C. is an older city than it actually is. Sometimes when I give a tour, if there are kids in the group, I will say to them, you know, the Jefferson Memorial is a little over 80 years old. Would you guys consider that old or young? Now, to their credit, most kids who come on my tour are pretty clever, and they say that 80 years is young, 
because it's the context that matters. What are you comparing it to? Compared to the age of the country, it's kind of young. But comparing it to many of the other monuments on the tour, it's kind of old. But generally speaking, Washington, D.C. is a young city. Even though the District of Columbia has been recognized as the official federal district since 1801, most of what you see today was built in the last hundred years or so. A lot of stuff built in the 1800s has been rebuilt. The old stone house in Georgetown is the oldest unchanged building in the city, and European tourists always get a kick out of the fact that it was built in 1765. Our oldest building only goes back to 1765. Last year, I got a chance to visit Rome, which, as a history buff, was a big opportunity for me. And I actually had the opposite reaction. Tour guides would say things like, oh, this is one of our newer buildings. It was built in 1800 or something. So again, it's all about context. It's true that a lot of history happened in Washington, D.C., but it tends to be more modern history. Sometimes when I get people on my tour, they tell me that they're really into Hamilton, and I think that's great. Hamilton is a fantastic play, but the Founding Fathers were not hanging around D.C. because it basically didn't exist yet. If you want to visit sites from Hamilton or from the Founding Fathers days, that's all up in Boston and New York and Philadelphia. Historic events in D.C. kind of came later. Speaking of historic places, misaligned expectation number nine is that tourist sites in Washington, D.C. are just a bunch of government buildings. Now look, I'm not going to lie. A lot of the major tourist sites are federal government buildings, but that's only a slice of what there is to do here. I know a lot of people come to D.C. and all they do is federal government stuff. I know this because every once in a while I ask people to volunteer to share their trip itineraries with me. And sometimes people send me their itineraries unprompted, even though I don't always have time to review them when I'm busy with other stuff. I'm sorry. The best itineraries are a mix of federal government stuff and local stuff. I'm not going to be that guy who says you should skip the Smithsonian Museums or the Lincoln Memorial or the Capitol because that's quote-unquote touristy. That would be ridiculous. But I am going to be that person to say that if your itinerary is jam-packed with nothing but federal government, it's going to get tedious and you'll burn out a lot more quickly than with a balanced itinerary. Of course, if your expectation is that the only things for tourists in D.C. are federal government sites, then that's all you're going to plan on doing. So think a little outside the box and remember that D.C. is a big city with lots of other cool big city things to do. Now, on to misaligned expectation number 10, which is that tourist sites in D.C. aren't crowded. Like I've said, Washington, D.C. tourism is seasonal. I'm recording this in January, which is the low season. And it's possible to come here during January without tickets or reservations to anything and still be okay. But I promise that if you do this during spring break in two months, you will very much not be okay. One of the reasons I tend to be negative about 8th grade field trip season is because field trip groups are huge, and they take up a ton of space. I gave a private tour yesterday, and it was glorious. Sure, the weather was a bit chilly, but the crowds were low, and at several of the monuments, we had the entire place to ourselves. That's something that can happen in January. It is not something that can happen most other months of the year. This actually segues perfectly into misaligned expectation 11, which is that Because most tourist sites in D.C. are free, you don't need to worry about planning ahead or getting tickets. When it comes to places that require reservations, like some of the museums, the Washington Monument, popular restaurants, 
you need to expect that they're going to be booked up and sold out well in advance and start planning ahead. It doesn't matter if it's something that's free. It doesn't matter if it's the most expensive tasting menu in town. There's nothing that makes me sadder than when someone tells me they came here without plans and couldn't do the things they wanted to because everything was already booked up. Okay, now let's switch gears a bit with misaligned expectation number 12, and that's everything to do with protests. People have all kinds of expectations when it comes to protests, and they really run the spectrum. I've had guests come on tour with me and comment that they were expecting to see protests everywhere, and they hadn't even seen a single one yet. And on the other hand, I get emails and messages from people somewhat frequently terrified that if they come to D.C., they're going to see protests, and they want to ask me if there's any way to avoid protests. Here's the thing. Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. And as long as the United States is a democracy, people are going to come here to protest. If you come to D.C. as a tourist, you should expect to see protests. That doesn't mean they're going to be huge. It doesn't mean it's going to be like the March on Washington in 1963 with tens of thousands of people. But it means you might see a few dozen people marching with signs. You might see someone leading a crowd with a megaphone. It might even be disruptive to you as a tourist. Another misaligned expectation often comes from the people doing the protesting themselves. When you come to Washington, D.C. to protest, it can feel like your cause is the most important thing in the world and that everyone around you is going to care what you have to say and the TV cameras are going to show up to get your message out there. The reality is that when you protest, most people simply won't care. They just won't. And I'm sorry if that's harsh, but I've been tour guiding a long time and I can tell you that's just the reality. I met someone who works in this field and I asked them, why do you keep bringing groups to DC when it doesn't seem like it moves the needle at all? And what they told me was actually pretty enlightening. They said that political movements, if done right, are a slow burn. You have to play the long game. Major changes don't happen overnight. The reason for hosting a protest in DC is to keep morale high amongst those who are part of the cause. When you're in a place marching with people who believe in the same ideals and the same causes, it makes you feel like it's worth something. Otherwise, people lose interest in the cause and they move on to other things. And that's why there are so many and such frequent protests in DC. All right, now the next misaligned expectation that people have is that family tourism is what drives prices of things in DC. For example, sometimes people will make offhanded comments to me about the 4th of July and say, oh, it must be super expensive to come to DC then because there are so many tourists around. And actually, that's not entirely accurate. To clarify, when people make this comment, they're usually referring specifically to airfare and hotel rates because those are typically the two biggest expenses on a trip and also because they are the two that have the widest variation in pricing. The price of airfare and hotel rooms is based on supply and demand. The supply is generally fixed. There are only so many hotel rooms in DC and there are only so many planes that come and go each day. But the demand fluctuates quite a lot. However, remember that demand is based on all types of travel, not just family tourism. Family tourism is one component of travel, but there's also business travel, conference travel, event travel, etc. The 4th of July does have a lot of family tourism. That's true, for sure. But it also has virtually no business travel. So people are often surprised that the rates are not nearly as high as they imagined. Another example is Thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving is a notorious travel holiday. The days before, and especially the weekend after Thanksgiving, have some of the highest airfares of the entire year because so many people are traveling. But most of those people are not traveling to go on vacation. They're traveling to a family member's house to spend the holiday with them. So Thanksgiving is a bit of an anomaly where airfare is very expensive, but hotel rates are rock bottom. Not because people aren't traveling, but because it's a very specific type of travel. My own family came and visited D.C. last year over Thanksgiving and was thrilled with the rate they got at a very nice hotel at an excellent location. Okay, we're getting close to the end of my list, but before we get to the final two misaligned expectations, I just want to say thank you for tuning into this podcast. I'm going to be launching a new segment at the end of every podcast episode, starting with this one, so make sure to stick around all the way till the end to hear what I've got planned. In the meantime, let's get to misaligned expectation number 14, which is that the food in Washington, D.C. isn't good. Let me start by saying that it's entirely possible to eat terribly when you visit D.C. It's also possible to eat terribly in Rome, or Paris, or New York, or any number of places. When I was planning my first trip to Italy, there was a lot of advice on how to avoid restaurants near big tourist sites because those places know they won't get repeat customers, so they have no incentive to serve good food. In D.C. and probably every big city, the way you eat well is by going to the non-chain places that locals go. And I say non-chain places because the truth is, plenty of locals eat meals at Chipotle and Shake Shack and get coffee at Starbucks. Those are all solid chains, but they're also not that special. If you want to eat well, it usually involves a bit of planning. You don't have to go overboard with this, but just do a little bit of planning. Washingtonian Magazine has their 100 Very Best Restaurants Guide, and I think that's a solid source. Even just poking around on Google Maps, it should become obvious pretty quickly which ones are good and which you should skip. But if you have a family member or friend who came to D.C. and told you the food is bad, and their evidence of this is that every meal they ate was bad, you might want to ask if it's because of the places that they chose. Another reason people sometimes have misaligned food expectations is because they're comparing food in D.C. to somewhere else. One of my favorite fast casual restaurants in D.C. is District Taco. I think it's pretty tasty. I also didn't grow up eating Mexican food. So when people tell me that they didn't like District Taco because where they're from in California or Texas has way better Mexican food, I believe them. It's probably true. But it also wasn't fair to expect the food here to be like back home. Same could be said for barbecue or cheesesteaks or bagels. People love to come out of the woodwork and say things like, D.C. doesn't have a single good pizza place. You've got to go all the way to New York for a decent slice. Which, frankly, is a pretty ridiculous thing to say. But you'll hear it nonetheless. And misaligned expectation number 15 is that Washington, D.C. is going to be like, insert movie or TV show here. One of the most annoying years for me as a tour guide was 2013. That was the year that House of Cards came out on Netflix. And if you remember, House of Cards was Netflix's first original show, and everybody with a Netflix account seemingly watched it that year. Then they showed up to D.C. that spring or summer and had all these wild expectations about what the city is like because it was portrayed that way in the show. Whether your favorite show is House of Cards or West Wing or Veep or Madam Secretary, it's not real. It's fiction. I personally love Veep. I think it's one of the funniest shows ever made. But come on, you have to understand the satire is not real. 
most movies and shows that are set in D.C. are not filmed here. Yes, there are always some establishing shots, and that's about it. House of Cards and Veep were filmed in Baltimore. West Wing was filmed on a set in Los Angeles. I am a sucker for any movie or show that is set in D.C. and have watched many of them over the years, which is why I'm confident to say that you can't expect anything you see in them to be real once you get here. All right, and that's it for the list. But like I said, I'm going to start a new segment, which will be at the end of every podcast episode, and it's basically going to be a quick behind-the-scenes of what's going on with TripHex DC and sometimes Washington DC more generally. I was listening to a talk by a pretty prominent podcaster recently, and they made a really interesting point about how we live in an era where nobody has any attention span, and yet this medium, podcasting, is asking people to take a significant chunk of time out of their day to listen, and anyone who makes it to the end of an episode is truly a top fan. So this new segment is for you, the top fans. I'm still working on a good term to refer to you all, uh, but for now, that's what you are to me, top fans. My update as I'm recording this in late January 2024 is that I'm going to be trying something new with TripHex DC Tours this spring. My bread and butter tour has always been the private tour with me. It's a flat price, and when you sign up, you get to tour exclusively with me. No other random tourists in the group with you. I've had a lot of success with this tour, but I'm also hyper aware that a private tour is a premium experience, and it's priced as a premium experience. I get messages from people who say they'd love to take a tour with me, but the price is prohibitive. This is especially true if you're just a solo traveler or a couple. A lot of times people will say, we're happy to join with others, we really just want a tour with you. Unfortunately, my time is stretched thin. I don't have the resources to play matchmaker for groups who want to share a private tour. The solution to this is a tour that's ticket-based. If you're a solo traveler, you only need to buy one ticket. If you're a couple, two tickets, etc. This allows people who can't swing a private tour to still take a tour with me. But it also shifts the risk onto me as well. With a private tour, if no one is signed up, I don't make any money, but I also have four hours back to work on something else, either TripHex DC or my other business. On a ticket-based tour, if I only sell a single ticket, I have to spend quite a bit of valuable time, but I don't make nearly enough to make it worth that time. All of that said, I'm creating a new tour. I'm calling it a semi-private tour with me. It's a ticket-based tour, and it's on the calendar for four dates this spring. March 23rd, March 30th, April 6th, and April 13th. These are four Saturdays during spring break and the Cherry Blossom Festival. So if this tour isn't going to work during four of the busiest weekends of the year, that's all the data I need to tell me that it's not going to work. The way I'm measuring success for this tour is, if I can sell 24 or more total tickets, I will consider it a success and potentially extend it into the summer months. If I sell fewer than 24 total tickets, I will consider it a failure, and that will be the end of the experiment. Right now, in late January, I have sold four total tickets, so there's still a long way to go before having an answer, but there are also still a couple of months before spring. And with that, I hope you enjoyed the episode and the new segment, 
If you want to leave a rating for this podcast in your favorite podcast app, that's always appreciated. And if you're interested in a TripHacks DC tour, whether it's this new one or a private tour, just head on over to the website and check it out. Thanks for listening to the TripHacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a TripHacks DC guided tour, visit TripHacksDC.com.